Hello and welcome to the Canadian Literature Centre's Brown Bag Lunch Reading Series, the COVID edition. I'm Sarah Krotz, Director of the Canadian Literature Centre, which is based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. Known to many as Amiskwachewaskagan, Edmonton is located on Treaty 6 territory in the Métis Nation of Alberta, District 4. Like so many other live in-person readings this year, the CLC's Brown Bag Lunch series has been affected by COVID-19. Instead of our monthly program hosting writers from across Canada at the University of Alberta, we're pleased to offer you our 2020-21 series in podcast form, delivered right to your living room or kitchen. We hope you enjoy this chance to connect with authors from across the country. Our first podcast of 2021 features the University of Alberta's writer-in-residence, the widely celebrated writer and artist J.R. Carpenter. Here to introduce J.R. and the Writer-in-Residence program is the acclaimed Métis poet and Associate Professor of English and Film Studies, Marilyn Dumont. Welcome, Marilyn and J.R. Hello. My name is Marilyn Dumont, and I'm the coordinator of the Writer-in-Residence program at the University of Alberta, the English and Film Studies Department. Our Writer-in-Residence program is a year-long residency, which runs from September 1st to May 31st. And for the last 40 years, it has brought acclaimed writers from across Canada to Edmonton. While here, the Writer-in-Residence has time to pursue their own writing projects, while keeping office hours two and a half days a week for writing consultation with university campus, uh, students, staff, as well as the general public in and around the Edmonton area. This year's Writer-in-Residence, I'm very pleased to introduce, is J.R. Carpenter. J.R. is an artist, a writer, a researcher working across performance, print, and digital media. Her pioneering works of digital literature have been presented in museums, galleries, and festivals around the world. Her web-based work, The Gathering Cloud, won the New Media Writing Prize in 2016. Her print poetry collection, An Ocean of Static, was highly commended by the Forward Prizes in 2018. Her most recent collection, This is a Picture of Wind, was named one of the best books of 2020 by The Guardian. And most recently, she has worked with our previous writer-in-residence, Darren Hagen, uh, Edmonton writer. J.R. and Darren Hagen have put together a beautiful audio piece that I encourage you to listen to on the English and Film Studies website. And it's called Kissy Sketch One CP, uh, a beautiful audio piece. So without further ado, please welcome J.R. Carpenter, the 2020 University of Alberta Writer-in-Residence. My name is J.R. Carpenter. I am a migrant, a double emigrant born of immigrants, born of emigrants. Even where I come from, I come from away. 
For 19 years, I lived in English as a minority language on the French-speaking island of Montreal. In 2009, I emigrated to the island of England, where my English will forever mark me as a foreigner. Questions of place, displacement, migration, and climate change have long pervaded my writing. Questions which are mostly unanswerable. Questions which I try to answer anyway. Because speaking about the unspeakable with someone comes as a relief. I am speaking to you today from the banks of Kisiskechewan CP in Treaty 6 territory, where I am currently a curious and grateful visitor. I'm going to read three pieces, each of which explores some aspect of colonialism and climate change through the appropriation of found texts and data sets. This first piece is from my collection, An Ocean of Static, published by Penned in the Margins in 2018. In this piece, lines of dialogue from Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, are exchanged between two mysterious interlocutors in a close ship-bound setting, evocative of Joseph Conrad's novel, The Secret Sharer. The piece is called Once Upon a Tide. Once upon a high spring slack neap tide, we drifted, coasted, slid, slipped, tacked, past a bay, beach, cape, cove, dune, lagoon. Our ship brought us hither, a brave vessel, tight and yar and bravely rigged, most strangely landed, so near the bottom run. On the lower main middle poop side quarter deck, two young, old, slim friends, boatswain sailors, hunched, perched, crouched, sat, mending nets, baiting lines, spinning yarns, twisting tails. From their accents, apparel, dress gestures, looks, movements, I guessed, gathered, suspected, assumed that they both, the pair, the two of them, had been born, come, hailed, sailed, journey from braver, better known, far fairer, gentler shores, clearly, surely, obviously none so barren, bleak, harsh, haunted, wicked, wild as these. As the bells rang for morning, forenoon, first dog watch, the quieter, slighter one said, We are oppressed with travel. We are all sea swallowed, our garments drenched. The sea mocks our frustrated search. Every drop of water sears against us. The sea 
mounting, dashes the fire out, a thousand furlongs of sea, the washing of ten tides, the still closing waters will shortly fill the reasonable shore. They hoist us to cry to the sea, the last of our sea sorrow, I would have sunk within the sea, plunged into the foaming brine, the ooze of the salt deep, I shall no more to see, the sea cannot drown me, I am standing water. One bell, two bells, two bells sounded a pause, one bell, Two bells sounded a pause. Two bells, two bells sounded a pause. Two bells, pause, one bell. Two bells sounded a pause. Two bells, pause. Two bells, two bells sounded a pause. Two bells, pause. Two bells, pause, one bell. Two bells, a pause. Two bells. Pause. Two bells. In the near, middle, faint, far distance, the bulk, hulk, ghost, shadow, vision of an island loomed. The fairer, slower, sharper one leaned, gestured, peered, pointed in this direction. After a pause, a sigh, the bells, some time, which seemed an eternity, the other replied, I am king of this country, this fearful country. I could recover the shore, but is this not near shore? How came we ashore unto these yellow sands? Come alive unto land. Have you no mouth by land? Here shall I die ashore, here in this island we lie in an odd angle, arms in a sad knot. This island will not let you believe certain things, be not afraid. This island is full of noises, the folly of this island, most opportune place. Enter like a water nymph. Enter playing and singing solemn and strange music. Enter several strange shapes, gentle actions of salutation, a quaint device. Soft music, solemn music. Enter diverse spirits in shape of dogs and hounds. They sing song. A strange, hollow, and confused noise, a noise of hunters heard, a cry within, a frantic gesture, a tempestuous noise of thunder and lightning heard. Enter a shipmaster, enter a boatswain, enter mariners, wet. Come, open your mouth, a word, oh, but one word, oh, wonder, oh, defend me, 
doth thy other mouth call me? Monstrous, mercy, mercy on us. Alack, for mercy, fury, silence. Why, I said nothing. Ha, ha, oh, ho, hark, hear a most strange story. The story of my life. Please you, draw near. What cheer? How now? All lost, away, the leaner, meaner, stronger one croaked, spoke, whispered, exclaimed. Would you that soon the flush half hurricane deck be standing, drowning, drenched in cold mist magic? The strangeness of this business, these are not natural events. I raised the tempest, I called forth the mutinous winds, I bedimmed the noontide sun, I put the wild waters in this roar, a plague upon this howling, oh, the dreadful thunderclaps, the fire and cracks of sulfurous roaring, run upon the sharp wind, Wound the wind, a mind to sink. It is foul weather in us all. The sea sorrow, miss tempest by that island, our tide time watch was certainly clearly, unquestionably uncommon, unnatural, unsettled, grim. But was that any help, use, that kind, sort type of answer? The bizarre, awkward, odd strangeness of their speech, exchange, yarn, narration put a cold, heavy, helpless, listless restlessness in me. In the foul, frigid, humid, heavy salt air, a bolt rope, cable, cuddy lamp, riding light, lantern, creaked, groaned, swayed, listed, under cover of canvas, murk. Shadow shelter. I loitered, crouched, sat, stooped. Long I listened, waited, watched, wondered, closely, quietly, keenly. Exit, exunt. They vanish. This next piece is from my collection, This is a Picture of Wind, published by Longbarrow Press in June 2020. In this piece, I pillage my own archive of weather writing accumulated over a seven-year period in an attempt to come to terms with the effect of climate change on an adopted landscape, a place at once familiar and strange. April. A walk through the wood. A carpet of bluebells unfolds. Memories of ferns unfurl. A feast of wild garlic keeps pace along the path, and by the south key, sea beat, a plenty. Green shoots through the vineyard, pale, 
before the blaze beyond. The brilliant copper beach leaves fresh red sequins dance in sprite sun. May. The weather is green. The river is green. A greener green I've never seen. The trees, an explosion. We slip in midstream, ride the falling tide, row until we see green ocean. Wind stiff on the way back, or shaped muscles sprout where wings should be. In the morning, our arms are sore as if we had been trying to fly. June. Six swans slide past the south key, fast, single file, silent, white in late sunlight. For weeks now, it has been raining. A wee lurcher looks on longingly at the low tide, at the mud flats, brackish water laps, green knot land, this salt grass, a field day with the ducks in, ears back. She leans against the lead. July. Bright chop at blackness, a splash of sudden sun, a season we've almost forgotten the name for. Voices clatter across the water, clouds clutter the far corners, buzzards circle, and sometimes an osprey. The tide turns, the wind against us. Night rose toward shifting shadows, blister on oar hand, surrender feels right. August. Jacket on sun, jacket off wind, jacket on sweat, jacket off rain, jacket on stops. And so begins the rumor, a new sound in the leaves, a new surface on the water. And so begin the hydrangeas, bigger than hearts, smaller than heads, and also the swallows, the sheer volume of them, a tangle of feeding, an acre of air. September, late summer thunder, heat rising out of nowhere, elegiac, but we'll take it on a long walk, blackberries, in dense bramble, blackthorn ripening, slow. Black blankets of rooks airing out over the wood. The sun sets as if it means it. A sudden squall for all puts the wind in window. The shivering way we brace and say autumnal. October, 
A gruesome night, bucketing down, an extra anchor down, lest the bed slip its moorings. In the morning, the noise ends. Dense mist hugs the river bends. Two crews of eight skull past, scoring dark water. Through wet light, bird sound before sight, an arrow of geese rises, a greater than sign in the sky. November. The sound of light rockets through night. Fire works its way down the bank, red and orange, Leaves by way of water, gold teeth glint in the wood till the wind smashes them. The high wind, the round hills, will always make room for frost shapes, the long shade, soft absences where in the night large beasts were sleeping. December. I drive through Somerset. Swans dog ear far corners of rain-drenched fields. We call on Michael and Yuta. They give us a bag of English walnuts. Just that, a brown paper bag full of fresh windfall. They'd collected all autumn. Outside, bits of dried grass and soil clinging black inside the whiteness of the wet nut, startling. Here's a trick. Place the seam of a walnut on a table under the middle joint of the first finger of your right hand. With your left hand, make a fist. Bring it down, not too hard. The shell cracks with a pleasing thwack. The smaller handed among us delight. January. The river parrot bursts its banks. Michael and Yuta's house floods for the first time in ever. We see it in the paper, a picture of the most cheerful man we know, his face a shattered shell. He stands in hip waders in the kitchen at the high water mark on the wall behind him. He will not look. February. It's still raining. It has always rained. We are silt dwellers, tide chasers, puddles, floods, mud. The river runs brown, topsoil down and out to the sea. From a fur erupts a murmur of starlings by fur. I also mean fur, a pelt of needles, hackles, raised 
storm force 10 at the river mouth. The scale goes up to 12. After that, the sky breaks. The fur comes down and takes two eucalyptus with it. March. This morning, a forester shimmies up the copper beach. All day, a chainsaw, trimming branches, weather weakened, opening huge holes in the blue. This is a picture of wind. Finally, I will now read the entirety of a single poem chapbook called Words for Worlds Upended, published by Guillemont Press in October 2020. This piece was written in response to the 400th anniversary of the sailing of the Mayflower from Plymouth in England, where I was living at the time of this writing. This piece draws on conflicting archival sources to decentralize the narrative of the so-called Pilgrim Fathers, focusing instead on the ship itself, the flowers it's named after, the harbors it sailed out of, the weather it sailed into, and the indigenous names for peoples, places, and plants affected by this voyage. Words for worlds upended. A seed may germinate, sprout, shoot, stem, and soon be leaf. From what does a ship spring? What plans, what sails, what sown, what seeds, what cloth, what weave? What ribs? What trees, what hills, what wind, what rain, what woods? Whose hands are these? Who cuts, who planes, who saws, who sows? The Mayflower is believed to have been built in Harwich. A passive voice denotes uncertainty, a large harbor created by a storm surge in the 12th century, a quirk of fate, a devouring wave, the mouth of an estuary, mutters merchants, utters captains, spits, ships. 26 ships of the same name graced the port books during King James' reign, a common name for a common flower, the hawthorn possibly, or consider the lily known in Latin as Convaliera of the Valley, Majalis of May, a symbol of spring for the Celts, the Picts, and the Romans, a thoroughly pagan flower until the first day of May, 1561. King Charles of France gave each lady in his court a small bouquet a nosegay, a muje, 
from the old French, from musk scented. The practice soon spread. The French soon spread. Smallpox and seven-day fever. Summer, 1605. A French bark of good reputation plies the coastal waters of Wabanakic. The ship takes a course from the shore. The cartographer desires to be shown. Islands, mouth rivers, tides, draw shallows, canoes come to hunt birds. Cakes and peas exchanged, a knife and some biscuit. Corn refuses the stone coasts of nut trees and oaks, cultivates the soft soil of the interior. Red currents, swift currents, fresh winds, trim sails, harbor rocks, break seas. Another bay outlined, another river passed, unperceived. Anchors weighed in 16 fathoms, a portion of night. On the 18th day of July, two leagues of sandy coast sail by. A great many cabins and gardens, the cartographer notes. The wind being contrary, we entered a bay to await a time favorable for proceeding. Contrary to what? Favorable to whom? Wind resists the sail. Time resists progress. An arm of water extends a short distance inland. The end of March, 1974. A poet visits the stretch of sandy coast marked on the cartographer's chart as D dunes, present day, Duxbury, but it was scarcely the day to take a walk on that long beach. Sea birds in ones or twos, two or three canoes, cod in large numbers. A hook was given, a hook was taken as a curiosity, bone fastened by hemp. Did hands touch? Was fever spread? A place conspicuous from the sea, unsuitable for settlement, for the coast is very low. Patoxit territory for 10,000 years or so before the French named it Port Saint-Louis, 11 years before the English named it Plymouth, four years before the Mayflower was hired in Rutherite on the river roads leading out of London. Furnished in Southampton, where the Titanic sailed from, met by the speedwell lately of Delft Haven, Another ship named after another common flower, a pretty blue perennial of the genus Veronica, native in grasslands, common 
on roadsides, sewn into clothing, a charm for travelers, a wild flower to speed you well, also known as cat's eye, farewell and goodbye. A pinnace, a tender to a larger vessel, two weeks at anchor, taking on water, further repairs to the speedwell in Bayard's Cove, the Mayflower moored upstream. Aria, arise, alive, a river running green in the shadow of a steep wooded bank, the ancient stone of the lower Devonian, a dark strip between water and leaf. Sea ends the land, an excess of sail strains the timbers. Water pressures the hull. Damp dampens the spirits. A lateness of season, a closeness of quarters, a reluctance of crew. The sister ships turn hard about for Plymouth. A square rig, three masts, mizzen, main, and four, 180 tons, 180 casks, 130 humans on board, 100 feet from beak to stern, the length of one blue whale. A high forecastle, a fortress against the elements, a high aft castle, a liability when sailing into autumn winds prevailing westerly. Many difficulties, leaking, heaving, drifting without sails in boisterous storms. On the ninth day of November, 1620, at dawn, land rises on the horizon, Nassau territory of the Wampanoag Confederacy, a cape of white sands, the main sea on one side, a great bay on the other in the form of a sickle by accident of weather in this excellent harbor, the Mayflower, anchors. Deep soil of black earth well wooded with oaks and pines, juniper and birch, holly and vines. Walking Nassau territory in 1850, a naturalist refutes these claims. Black earth enough to fill a flower pot, sorrel enough to color the surface, scarcely anything high enough to be called a tree, the greater part of the land, a perfect desert of yellow sand. 46 days on ships before departing Plymouth, 66 days at sea, settlers see what settlers want to see.
The shore resists the ship by way of shallow water, wading a bowshot or more in distance to reach dry land. Cold weakens the body five weeks, stumbling, unsettled, half-starving, through territory, half-emptied by fever, the living away at hunting grounds. The settlers steal some maize. They leave a note in English, promising to return it. They leave Nasut for Patoxit, a place known to them as Plymouth. They find a people all but extinct. The Nasut and the Patoxit share with the Wampanoag a common Massachusetts tongue, the floral emblem of the state of Massachusetts is Epigenia repens, also known as trailing arbutus, commonly known as mayflower. A low spreading plant, not known to grow in England, a creeping woodland shrub with an upward facing flower in no way resembling the densely crowned hawthorn shrub, which can grow to a height of eight meters, or the downward dangling bell-shaped flower of the lily of the valley. There is no New England, only new names for harbors and bays, fish and maize, words for worlds upended. That was J.R. Carpenter reading to us from Edmonton, where she is the University of Alberta's writer-in-residence. This podcast is the result of a partnership between the CLC and the Writer-in-Residence program. We hope you've enjoyed it. This has been an episode of the Canadian Literature Centre's Brown Bag Lunch podcast reading series, produced by Sarah Krotz, Austin Lee, and Matthew Cormier. Edited by Claire Peters. Music composed and performed by Bruce Ziff. The CLC's programming is made possible by generous financial support from Dr. Eric Schloss and from the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta. New episodes of the 2020-21 Brown Bag Lunch podcast reading series will be posted monthly on the Canadian Literature Centre's website. Thanks so much for listening.